one and all, I am Matt. I am here once again to provide you with your weekly dosage of chaotic narration. You'll hear some other kinda echoey voices that come through from time to time. That's the voice in my head that I call Alex, and he is our co-host. I'm here to keep this guy from going off course for too long. Yeah, we'll see about that. Welcome back to my second self and I, everybody. June is over, July is upon us. I am melting away down here in Texas as we are dead ass in the middle of what I call swamp season right now. And since it's so hot outside, I figured we might as well make it hot in here. Yeah, take your clothes off. You can take them off or leave them on. I don't really care. You might want to at least dress lightly, though, should you choose to wear clothes at all while you listen to this, because July is hot girl summer. This whole month we're going to be doing serial killers with no Y chromosome, double X only. I'm sorry, but if you want any more X's than that, well, you'll have to go to a different place on the internet. We're going to start off with a little story about a woman named Sarah Aldrete, a.k.a. La Madrina. There's going to be some stuff about some obscure religious practices such as Santeria and Palo Mayumbe. If you listened last week, don't worry. My Spanish accent is a million times better than my British slash Australian is. There's going to be a lot of ritual sacrifices, torture, dismemberment, sodomy, and lots of other really good shit. But seriously, this is your warning. If you don't feel up to listening to that kind of stuff today, I get it. It's gross, and frankly, <laughs> this is some of the most hardcore, brutal shit I've ever read about. It's definitely not for everybody. Right here is probably also a good spot to point out that this is a comedy show. There's going to be lots of swearing and goofy voices and weird energy. I'm going to do my best to give you the actual facts and the real story that happened, but I'm also going to take a few creative liberties in the storytelling department to make it funnier and, therefore, easier to digest and listen to. If you're new here, I get it. I know. I understand that the funny part isn't when someone dies, but there's all the things leading up to it and afterwards that at least I can look at and find something to laugh at. There's usually something in there that kind of makes me scratch my head and look at it and say, how the hell did you figure out how to get from A and skip to Q? Where did you, how'd you do that? That's what I mean. And this show doesn't have any ads yet, but don't be surprised if you hear one or two fake ads or commercials that I make up. Sometimes the death and darkness can be a little overwhelming. Today in particular is pretty gross, so I throw those in to give us a little bit of a break. And honestly, they're really fucking fun to do. When I was doing the research on this, which, by the way, took me to some weird places this week, I was excited to find a female serial killer that I'd never heard of before. But then when I got to reading everything I could find related to this story, there were fewer and fewer new details about her role. I wanted her to largely be the focus of the episode today, since we don't normally get to talk about female killers. I mean, we've done a few, but the vast majority have been men. And unfortunately, most of the information about this story, which is an insane fucking story, it's why I'm still doing it, most of the info has to deal with her accomplice, Adolfo Constanzo, and his gang activities. The two worked closely together in a mini-cult slash drug cartel out of Matamoros, Mexico, where many gruesome ritualistic murders took place. The focus in many of the articles is on Adolfo, as he was the leader of the cult, but Sarah was involved with at least one of the most brutal ones, and was a key player in selecting victims for their sacrifices. I think just because the articles don't mention her as frequently doesn't mean she isn't just as culpable. So to make up for the lack of detail on the exact manner of her involvement, after the story concludes, I'll touch on some other characteristics of female killers. That'll kind of tease us into next week's episode on a different woman that kills people entirely on her own. 
I don't know who it'll be yet, but rest assured, she is a strong, independent woman that don't need no man to help her murder. <laughs> so if all that sounds good to you, take a seat, take your shoes off, put a comfy robe on, load a bowl, crack a beer, play a video game, whatever thing you do to unwind and mentally prepare for a good time, go do that while you listen to me tell you this crazy story about ritualistic cult murder. I think the way I want to begin is with some information about Santeria and Palo Mayumbe. This was absolutely the most interesting part of my research this week. I'd never heard of any of this before, and I love learning new things, and explaining it now will make it easier to get through the more confusing details in the story later on. There's a few aspects to it that we need to just get out of the way and elaborate on before we get started. So, I'm willing to bet many of you have heard the term Santeria before. Perhaps most notably in that one song that we're all about to sing right now on the count of three. One, two, three. I don't practice Santeria. I ain't got no crystal ball. But there's not many of us who've heard of Palo it all. Mexico and other Central American countries have long since embraced spiritualism and magical religious practices. Practices of beliefs of the ancient Aztecs and Mayans, as well as other tribes native to Mesoamerica, blended well with the ideologies of enslaved peoples brought over from Africa. We've actually talked about ancient Mayans before, way back whenever I was still operating under a different name and didn't know exactly what I wanted to talk about yet. I did a history on the Mayans back then. Some of you might have already known part of this, some of you might not have. While based primarily in Roman Catholic ideologies, what we know today as Santeria, Palomonte, or Mayumbe, and Voodoo share many common practices that seem pretty far off from what you generally hear attached to Christianity, such as ritualistic sacrifices involving goat heads or chickens, other small animals, magical talismans or other holy artifacts, drinking the blood of the aforementioned sacrifices, slapping their nipples with a cornstalk until they turn purple, whatever, you know. Where do those practices originate? During the Atlantic slave trade of the 16th through 19th centuries, many Central African peoples such as the Bakongo had began embracing Catholic ideologies and blending them into their existing practices. It's my understanding they did this so as to not lose their religious autonomy. One way they achieved this was by sanctifying their deities in the eyes of Christianity, claiming them as saints. Another way they did that was by definitely not slapping their own nipples with cornstalks. Come on, that was an easy one. I also think that's a really interesting and clever way to hold on to something important to your culture. The reason for this, I think, can kind of be looked at a couple different ways. Either oppressive Christians wouldn't be able to say their tribal religious beliefs are barbaric if they share a commonality with Christianity, or perhaps the teachings of such an entirely different religion from their own were so captivating they couldn't help but assimilate some of it into their practices. At least, that's how it kind of seems to me based on my limited knowledge of history. And I could make an entire episode dedicated to Palo and Santeria and everything that involves those things. It's, it's so deep. I didn't have time to get into it today. And it would be a really fun thing to do, but we're only going to focus on a couple of them. Namely, bear with me, the Nganga, Nfumbe, and the Palero. The what? I know. Those are some very different words than the ones I usually get to say, and I'm going to explain them. Don't worry. Basically... The Palero puts the Nfumbe in the Nganga. The Nganga acts as the physical manifestation of deities called Mpungu, and the Palero, or Palera, uses them to do their bidding. 
Said bidding can range anywhere from healing to intense physical pain upon others. The only difference between the benevolent or malevolent ritual is whether or not the Nganga has been baptized. Okay, so what do they do with it? How do they use it? The Nganga is a big-ass cauldron filled with sticks pulled from a certain tree, animal bones, hair, blood, and other offerings. The stuff inside the Nganga is the Nfumbe. The Nganga is fed through blood offerings from animals such as dogs, goats, chickens, cats, whatever a cockerel is, I think it's a bird, I don't know, but rarely is human blood ever used. Feeding the Nganga channels the Mupungu, or the spirit, inside the Nfumbe to manifest itself to the will of the Palero or Palera, the person that tends to the Nganga. It is said that should the Nganga develop a taste for human blood, it will continually demand it. Keep that in mind for later. That's also, I think, the main difference between Santeria and Palo. Santeria doesn't advocate for the use of human sacrifices, whereas certain aspects of Palo can and do. Just like with Christianity, there are differing sects of Palo that have different practices, but I don't think all of them involve human sacrifice, just some. This is an entirely new set of religious information for me to sift through and attempt to absorb in one week, so I apologize if I missed a critical piece or if I misunderstood something, but that should at least be enough set up for us to get through with the rest of the story without having to stop and explain too much. Let's first introduce Sarah Maria Aldrete Villarreal. Not much is known about La Madrina's early life, except that she was born on September 6, 1964 in Matamoros and her father was an electrician. She went to high school across the Texas border in Brownsville where she was a model student, attended secretarial school for a while where she continued to thrive, but her instructors were pushing her to attend a real college. However, like many young college-age people, love interests tend to get in the way of personal growth, especially when you're a six-foot-one blonde, athletic, caramel-colored beauty queen. Fuck school, I'm gonna go fuck that guy. She married a man named Miguel Zacharias. This was destined to fail, however, as he was 11 years older. Their marriage quickly fizzled out, and after five months, they were separated and effectively divorced. All right, that didn't work. Now let's try to go on to school. In 1985, Aldrete got resident alien status in the U.S., where she enrolled in Texas Southmost College, a two-year school in Brownsville. She was working part-time as a secretary and aerobics instructor while attending classes for a major in physical education. By the end of the first semester, everybody knew who she was. A tall, hot aerobics instructor that was also charismatic enough to make it onto the who's who list at the university, which only had 32 other people on it out of about 6,000 students. That's pretty impressive. Sarah was having the time of her life at college and even made time for extracurriculars like organizing a booster club for a soccer team and also earning the outstanding P.E. award in her spare time. Life is already going about as well as it could for Sarah, and then she moves back in with her parents back in Matamoros. She soon meets and begins dating a man that would, for all intents and purposes, force her into the position that she finds herself in later. Gilberto Sosa was a drug dealer associated with the Hernandez family, a small-time drug gang that was, at this moment, in over their heads. He was also Sarah's boyfriend, and his connections would prove to be a key element to this story. See, Gilberto was being watched by the other half of the future cult leaders, Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo. He is the mastermind behind this entire thing, and he is a scarily smart, ruthless man who will stop at nothing to achieve his goals. So let's go over a little bit of his background first before we dive into the rest. He was a Cuban-American who grew up in a little town outside of Miami, doesn't say which one. 
Born in 1962, he was just a couple years older than Sarah, and he was also literally raised by a witch. His mother and many others in town were practitioners of Santeria. She had been arrested over 30 times for trespassing, shoplifting, check fraud, grand theft, child neglect, and would apparently hex people all the time and leave dead chickens and goat heads on their doorsteps if they wronged her in some way. Adolfo grew up already immersed in the world of witchcraft, and his affinity for it seemed to be the only thing he cared about, apart from petty crime and cruising the gay bars. He learned much of those ways of witchcraft from his mother, often helping her rob graves to fill their own nganga. I forgot to mention earlier, Palo Mayombe is an amoral religion, meaning that there's no difference between using white or black magic. While there are deities and gods in Palo, they are completely disinterested in human affairs. We don't give a fuck what you do with it, just give us our offerings and you can have all the power you could ever want. Adolfo also supposedly successfully predicted the Reagan assassination attempt and that he would survive it, but I don't think that's just probably just bullshit. 1983 is a big year for him though. He fully devotes himself to the Palo version of Satan, Kadiem Pembe, which is, in turn, devoting him to the worship of evil for profit. That is a sentence. Wow. Then, as if by some divine intervention, probably in his mind anyway, a modeling contract lands Adolfo in Mexico City. While there, Constanzo was a frequent visitor to many of the gay bars and nightclubs in La Zona Rosa, while maintaining a close circle of male friends in a luxury apartment. He recruited his first disciples here as well, Martin Quintana, Jorge Montes, and Omar Orea Ochoa. Say that three times fast. Having been fascinated by the occult since they were 15, Adolfo, also being a tarot card reader, made it quite enjoyable for those three men to be around him. Ochoa and Quintana especially, as they were seduced by Adolfo, who claimed one of them as his man and one of them as his woman, depending on what he felt like at the time. There's a lot of layers to this guy. Adolfo is also incredibly intelligent, manipulative, and an all-around shady character. He's always working an angle. His tarot card business, along with ritualistic cleansings, which sometimes ran for up to $4,500 for a single session, garnered him a lot of attention from the public. He also... <laughs> this is amazing. He also created sort of a tiered menu for animal sacrifices. The level of cleansing you would receive is dependent on how much money you can put down, kind of like having a higher down payment to reduce the length of your car loan. Each tier represented by a different and more exotic animal than the last. Check this out. Roosters go for $6. Goats go for $30. Boa constrictors, $450. Adult zebras, $1,100. And... African lion cubs for $3,100. Where the fuck is he getting these animals? The first three I can work out. Okay, boas, goats, chickens, whatever. I can see all of those things. Like, boa constrictors may be a little less likely. Might be a bit of a stretch there, but I can see its plausibility. Zebras and lions, though, I don't know about that. And if he's only charging $3,100 for a sacrificial lion cub, that means he purchased it and had it imported from Africa for less than that. I don't know what kind of things are going through his head to figure out an exotic animal sacrifice menu, but I would absolutely buy an adult zebra for $1,100 right now. That would be so cool. Could ride it to work or the store. Look at my piano horse. His name is Jimi Hendrix. He also charged for services that claimed would make people bulletproof and invisible to the police. Again, sounds crazy, but he had ledgers that proved drug dealers paid him around $40,000 for magical services, so 
It's nothing if not lucrative at this point for him. But there's another non-advertised benefit to running this type of scam slash business, whatever you want to call it. The clients of tarot card readings and ritualistic cleansings often get a sense of personal and spiritual fulfillment, which in turn kind of makes them like Adolfo. Sure, they have to pay for his services, but it's a specialized practice. $300 is a small price to pay for peace. And when people like you, they tend to want to do things for you. For example, pointing out exploitable vulnerabilities in a competing business. Adolfo, for as young as he was, had a lot of ambition and charisma, and he knew exactly the route he wanted to take to achieve his goals. He spent the last four years doing business with different drug dealers and federal police, amassing a fairly substantial following of members into his cult. Until 1987, when he tried to bully his way into the Calzada family's operations. They said, no, fuck off, we're doing just fine without you, gaining a share of our profits, and then a few days later, the head of the family and six other members vanished. Fucking gone. All under mysterious circumstances. They turned up six days later, all bodies showing signs of ritualistic torture. Fingers, toes, ears, lungs, hearts, genitals, and two of their brains had been removed. I wonder wonder who could have done that. So now that he has no chance of taking over the Calzada family's operations, he has to find another avenue to drive down. And wouldn't you know it, he couldn't help but notice that the Hernandez family was struggling to keep their operations afloat. When he finally got wind of Gilberto and his new relationship with Sarah, he began planning his next scheme. Which, to his credit, actually worked. As crazy as it is that this story even happened, how it happened is even crazier. This motherfucker planned it every step of the way. Here we are again at the July moment of our show, July 30th. Sarah is out driving around the city. Windows down, blasting some music, got sunglasses on, cigarette in her hair, the whole shebang. Cigarette in her hair, in her hand, I hope it's not in her hair. Went out of nowhere, <laughs> went out of nowhere, an entitled Mercedes driver cuts her off in traffic, not using a blinker, and damn near causes her to crash. Who the fuck does this entitled jerk-off in a shiny new car think he is? It's Adolfo, of course. And he uses this opportunity to introduce himself to Sarah. Him being the male equivalent to Sarah in terms of looks, anyway. Tall, suave, handsome, well-dressed, drives a nice car. All the things that make a guy's shitty behavior fly out the window and make some girls go, Fuck, he's hot! Their meeting was no mere coincidence. The moment he found out about her relationship with Gilberto, he began planning his next move. He knew that the Hernandez family was struggling to keep their operations going, and that Gilberto was working for them. So he starts watching for any opportunity to intervene, and meeting Sarah was the start of it all. After settling things with the near-miss car accident, Sarah is smitten with Adolfo pretty much instantly. Turns out, he's smooth AF as well as being handsome, so there's a ton of chemistry, which I'm all certain was part of Adolfo's master plan. The next part of which included her gradual induction into the world of dark arts and Palo rituals. A scant two weeks after the two met, Adolfo injects himself into a lunch date with Sarah and Gilberto in Brownsville, where Adolfo markedly refused to shake Gilberto's hand. Check. Hey, how you doing? I'm Adolfo. I promise I'm not the guy you need to worry about. I, uh, I just didn't wash my hands after I went to the bathroom. There's no way he sounds like that. A couple days after that, Somebody anonymously calls Gilberto and tells him that Sarah is seeing another man. Check. Now how do you think a young, impulsive drug dealer is going to react to that news? Calmly? Angrily? 
Maybe he just quietly hung up the phone and walked away to go cry it off. We've already had ritualistic lion cub sacrifices. Fucking why not? Anything's possible today. Either way, he became enveloped in unsubstantiated jealousy and broke off the relationship. Sarah was pretty upset by all this, as you might imagine, and ran to Adolfo for comfort. Up to this point, Sarah's knowledge of the spiritual realm and the powers that they could potentially confer were largely a mystery to her, and she also had no idea that Adolfo pulled a page straight out of Lily's book in How I Met Your Mother and broke up Ted and Robin. I, I mean, Sarah and Gilberto. Now I want you to imagine the look on her face when Adolfo told her that he had foreseen the breakup coming in his tarot cards. <gasps> what? No way. Oh my god. Check and mate. Sarah and Adolfo are now both living their best life. They finally do end up sleeping together, but Adolfo strongly preferred men, which Sarah had to begrudgingly accept. She was kind of more interested in the religious aspect of the relationship anyway. It was a fascinating world that she'd never experienced before, so she didn't particularly mind that she wasn't getting the daily dick down by Adolfo! <laughs> that was too aggressive, I'm sorry. Adolfo had other plans, though. One day, after talking with Sarah about the current leader of the Hernandez family, Elio, he read in the cards that Elio would soon approach Sarah for advice. And on that day, she was to bring Elio to Adolfo, or as he's taken to calling himself now, El Padrino, the Godfather. The predestined almost car accident between Sarah and Adolfo, La Madrina and El Padrino, happened in July 1987. They'd spend the next year building strength within the cult as Adolfo was now the leader of the Hernandezes, he offered them divine protection through the ways of Paulo, including the bulletproof skin and invisibility claim from earlier, in exchange for effective control of the organization and its profits. And voila! A full-fledged cult with two dangerous, intelligent, ambitious leaders that will stop at nothing to win. Which, for them, was smuggling literal tons and tons of weed across the border, as well as smoking ritual cigars, drinking ritual rum, slaughtering ritual chickens and goats, including Ultra Mega Chicken, who I thought was just a legend, the cult is making tons of money and smart power moves. Things are going fucking great. Ultra Mega Chickens from Aqua Teen Hunger Force. They even had a Manson-esque way of recruiting new members into the cult. Heaven's Gate used Helter Skelter, the Beatles song. This cult, they don't have a name that I've found yet. I don't know what to call this cult yet, but they used the film The Believers as the preferred indoctrination tool. It's a movie about a father and son getting mixed up in black magic, and I'd have to imagine was preached as sort of a gospel for the cult. Okay, right here is a pretty good spot to take a short break. Things are about to get pretty gross. I think we're about halfway through the story now. This ended up being a lot longer than I thought it would be. But all of this cult shit's got me thinking. You know, I'm pretty well-spoken, intelligent, charismatic, well-educated. And I consume a lot of content about this type of thing. So I kind of can't help but wonder now what my own cult elevator pitch would be. My name is Minerva Minutia, and I am the 83rd reincarnation of the ancient space warlord Zardok. Our people come from a war-torn planet many millions of light years away. Though we were an extremely advanced species, the galaxy was not for resources, and our civilization slowly died out. Did you know that Zardok, in his last vestiges of mortal life, pushed forth his power onto the next generation? His soul left his body and ventured out into the heavens until one day it found a planet suitable for life that he might one day return. That planet was Earth. Throughout the Earth's life cycle, Zardok's soul has inhabited countless bodies, 
including trilobites, dinosaurs, plant life, small bugs, sentient single-celled giant amoebas, birds, fish, apes, reptiles, and of course humans. He has always existed and will always exist within all things, and I can help you awaken his power. As the direct descendant of Zardok, only I have found a way to fully awaken to his near omnipotent level of universal knowledge and truth. I can help you realize a higher calling than the one you claim now on Earth. Come, join your other Frutons and Brutons in the most noble cause you can ever stand for, the return of Zardok. With your help, I'll finally be able to manifest the physical body of Zardok and bring about an era of peace through the destruction of all suffering. Zardok will bring ruin to the enemies of peace and eternal riches and joy for the triumvirance of Nirvana. Stand with us, and together we will make universal history. Zardok awaits your response. Okay, back to the real cult again. So things are going great, operations seem to be running smoothly, profits are rolling in, but it's just not enough for El Padrino. When you get to the highest echelons of power and wealth, you kind of just want more. You want to see just how far you can go. And weirdly enough, he doesn't physically go very far from where we just were. I believe they met in Mexico City, but at some point, the base of operations where they get busy with the cult stuff is just outside of Matamoros. And guess what? We are once again going to visit the rundown, dilapidated piece of shit building outside of town. This one was about 20 miles outside Matamoros called Rancho Santa Elena and is the site of what's about to be some of the most gruesome, brutal examples of murder I've read about in a long damn time. I don't know who had the idea first, Sarah or Adolfo, but one of them decided that the group just wasn't performing well enough and they needed to up the ante and step up their sacrifice game. Look, we gotta do something, alright? We've only been able to sacrifice one of those lion cubs, and the other one keeps getting bigger and eating all of our other animals. So how about this? How about we just say fuck it and sacrifice our enemies to the gods and take the protection for ourselves that way? We get rid of the competition as well as protecting ourselves. It's a win-win. That discussion probably didn't go down that calmly. It was likely more of a we're doing this now kind of thing. The first two people he sacrificed were Hector de la Fuente and Moises Castillo. Moises was a young man from Houston that traveled to Mexico once a year to work the cornfields, and unfortunately, in May 1988, he and Hector were both shot and killed by the cult. Still not enough for El Padrino. Back in Mexico City, I guess he kind of goes back and forth, you know, there's probably other drug deals going on as well as sacrifices too, that makes sense. One day after my birthday on July 16th, also one year before, Adolfo supervises the torture and dismemberment of Raul Paz Esquivez, former lover of cult member Jorge Montes. He was one of those first three guys who wasn't Adolfo's man or woman. As for his body, they just dumped it in the street for people to find. And people did find it. Tiny ones. Children came across the gruesome body and ran screaming to the police. Was the dismemberment really necessary? Couldn't they have just regular killed him? Oh shit, no, absolutely not. Paolo demands brutality, blood, and viscera. Pain and mutilation are crucial. Sacrifices must die screaming. Otherwise, there's no point to any of this. And as for the sodomy, well, that's just a benefit to playing God. What the actual shit? That's what he really told his followers. Anything short of screaming and agony is not good enough. That is terrifying. 
A lot of their sacrifices were people that either Sarah had picked out that had previously wronged her or rival members of other gangs. And when you do what this group does, there's bound to be some blowback. A deal went pear-shaped for a rival group and the cult ripped them off for about $800,000. Then on August 10th, the rival cult group kidnapped one of the Hernandezes and his two-year-old son threatening to kill them if the money wasn't returned. So what does Adolfo do? He does what he's best at. He kidnaps a stranger off the street, tortures and kills them at Rancho Santa Elena, you know, offering a sacrifice for protection and intervention. And as far as he knows, it worked. A few days later, the hostages were returned without one single peso changing hands and BOOM! I am the master of all cults! I did that! My power made that happen! Adolfo is not one to shy away from taking credit for something that makes himself look better. Oh, what's that? You think just because you're on the same side as Adolfo, you're immune to his insanity? Think again! Just ask Jorge Valente de Fierro Gomez. He broke Adolfo's rule about not using drugs and very quickly became the next sacrifice. Protect us spirits from the ravages of drug use and the dark path they could lead us down. Deliver us into tranquility with this violent bloody offering. What the fuck, Adolfo? Imagine if this guy didn't grow up surrounded by literal witches. With his tenacity and willingness to do anything, he really could have made a positive difference somewhere if not for that damn witch's coven outside Miami. Uh, while we're at it, also, nature versus nurture for this guy? Fucking both. Kinda like our last mini-cult, I can't point to one any more than the other for him. In between all the killings, they're also pulling off high-value drug deals all over the place, which, given the nature of, sometimes leads you to new targets. Esquivel Rodriguez found himself at Rancho Santa Elena on Valentine's Day, 1989. But then, also, two other drug dealers just happened to show up and walk into the room when this was going down, and they got thrown into the mix, too. Ruben Vela Garza and Ernesto Rivas Diaz also found themselves bound and tortured. What amazingly terrible, unfortunate luck. How many is that now? I think we're up to eight? In eight months, so like one a month on average? By the way, Adolfo is basically just making shit up as he goes along. Whatever kind of rule he needs to make up or, or dodge seems to just be whatever the situation calls for. Smoking a joint? Death. Stealing from the cult? Death. Talking to the police? Death. Washing hair on a Tuesday? Double death. Adolfo's going to barter for your soul out of the Nganga after you die and then kill that too. Nine days later, they kidnap another stranger off the streets who is still unidentified to this day. And with nine bodies under their belt in such a short amount of time, you would think that a group that gains power through blood rituals would be pretty well set up, right? Pretty well protected? Well, maybe from outside sources as far as the cult is concerned, but power and greed does strange things to you. Makes you not think straight sometimes. On February 25th, they kidnapped and decapitated a young man who turned out to be... Elio Hernandez's nephew, Jose Luis Garcia. Whoops. They spent all this time trying to gain more protection from themselves and ended up murdering one of their own members. Bravo, guys. Either way, I don't think El Padrino really seems to mind he's got other stuff going on, because he and his company of members are sitting on about 800 kilos of weed to ship across the border, but even with 10 sacrifices, Adolfo still isn't satisfied. He told his lackeys, Bring me someone I can use. Someone who will scream. What he didn't plan on was what would happen after his next sacrifice. We're almost there, you guys. Just a little bit further. This next part, the next sacrifice on Adolfo's list, is the one that would bring this entire situation front and center into the media. People go missing in Mexico all the time, just plucked right off the street. 
We've seen plenty of examples of that already today, but so far, none of them have been gringos. The next sacrifice is planned for March 13th, which is right in the middle of SPRING BREAK! Woo! So let's talk a little bit about who this next person is, Mark Kilroy. Along with 15,000 other students, Mark Kilroy met up with some buddies on South Padre Island for spring break that year. Being so close to the border, Matamoros is a hotbed for the spring break crowd. Mark and his spring break buddy Bradley Moore were excited about getting away from school for a little while. They'd been talking about this trip all year. Mark was going to UT and Bradley was at A&M, but the two somehow managed to chisel out a friendship in between sports rivalries. The Friday night before his disappearance, Mark, Brad, and two other friends, Bill and Brent, all made the long journey to South Padre and by mid-morning Saturday were checking up into the hotel. It was supposed to be an epic week of girls and partying. Beer companies were lining up and down to drown the sorrows of spring breakers. Concerts, movies, free calls home, surf simulators, anything you can think of was probably floating around the Midway Avenue somewhere if you looked hard enough. Even some church groups from Wisconsin made their way there to try to bribe kids into praying instead of partying. They'd give out suntan lotion and free phone calls if you just promised to love the Lord. The only thing I can promise you is that the lotion you just gave to that group of college-age boys is not going to use them for tanning. By Sunday, they'd pretty much set up their whole routine. Wake up, shake off the hangover, go down to the beach, watch the Miss Tanline contest, fuck yeah, then go insane when officials try to prevent said contestants from taking their tops off. Fuck no, don't you dare get in the way of our good time and those titties, they go hand in hand. Both of them if I get lucky enough. After that, they would try to nap off the hot Mexican sun and then go party at the bars at night. The next day, Monday was as epic as they had ever hoped for. Solid sun, good waves, cold beer, loose titties at the tan line contest, good music, woo! Spring break was in full swing, and Mark was having the time of his life. That night, the group ended up at the Hard Rock Cafe, previously converted for spring break from the London Pub. Those are the two most different kind of drinking establishments you can have that I can think of. A quiet, reserved, docile pub where you can grab a pint with your best mate, or... You can chug alcohol from both ends while we ram salty fried food down your throat, surrounded by loud music. Fuck yeah, spring break! Woo! And why the hell is there a London pub in Mexico? Pardon my ignorance, but who's that really for in a town that close to two international borders that isn't the UK? We're gonna have to go back to this voice, yeah? Make it authentic for the location. No, don't worry, I'm not. It got to be about two in the morning and Bill finally notices... Shit, where the hell's Mark? Mark was outside chatting up one of the tan line contestants like a boss! So Bill, Mark, and the girl all start walking back. Time to go back to the hotel. Mark stops off at a private residence to say goodbye to Miss Tanline while Bill steps around the corner to go pay the water bill. By the time Bill gets back, Mark is gone. Vanished. What they didn't know, what they couldn't have known, was that somebody from Adolfo's cult had been watching them. Well, not specifically them, but Adolfo had told them to bring me a gringo, and it's thought that because of Mark being a handsome, well-spoken white kid, the gods would smile upon his suffering the most. And when Bill left him alone to go piss, Serafina Hernandez Garcia sent his assistants to snatch Mark and stuff him into the truck. Who's that? Serafine is the nephew to Elio Hernandez, the former leader and one of the cult's trusted members. They slowly made their way out of town past the industrial district, bars and shops becoming less and less frequent, and it's at that moment Mark realizes that these kidnappers are the same age as him. In fact, 
and Serafine both graduated from high school in Texas in the same year. That's a really interesting detail to me, just how different lives can be for people at the same age and in nearly the same area. That's, that's wild. Once the truck finally pulls into Rancho Santa Elena, the kidnappers leave Mark in the truck all night, and he doesn't see or hear anything from them until the next morning when he's brought some eggs and water. This would be the last bit of kindness he has ever shown. After the sun comes up, Adolfo and his men duct taped his eyes and mouth, marched him across the field and into the shed, placed him in a chair, and handcuffed his hands behind his back. Heads up, y'all. This place was disgusting. Smelled of rotting meat, both human and animal. There's strings of garlic pods and peppers hung all over the place. Weird pictures, just trash and rum bottles and cigar butts. Shit everywhere. Candles and wax on every surface. The Nganga full of God only knows what. And now Mark's here. They tortured this poor kid, burning machete, slashing Mark's into his skin, cutting off different parts of his body, his hands, fingers, God only knows what else, but the final blow landed by Adolfo was squarely on the back of Mark's head. Adolfo needed his brain for the ritual. So now they've killed an American, and kind of an important one at that. Another thing that the cult couldn't have known was that Mark's family had political connections, including an uncle who worked for the U.S. Customs Agency. And in a very short amount of time, the press and newspapers are going insane trying to figure out what the hell happened to Mark, and Adolfo's getting pretty antsy. He still had about 800 kilos of weed he had to move, though, so he says, You know what? Maybe just one more sacrifice before we go, and who does he choose? Remember Gilberto Sosa from the very beginning of this? Sarah's previous boyfriend, and sort of the whole reason that this whole thing got started? His last day on Earth was March 28th, and if I remember right, he was the one that got his nipples cut off and then was boiled alive. Good god damn, man, that's, ugh, that's one way to ensure screaming, and that's not even the most brutal part of this, there's a worse part coming up. The shipment was successfully transported on April 8th, 1989, and then the very next day, shit starts to fall through the cracks. All right, we're on the home stretch. April 9th, 1989, Serafine unwittingly drives through a police checkpoint and leads them straight to Rancho Santa Elena. Oh no! Elio, Serafine, and two other suspects are arrested and confess to torturing and killing Mark, Serafine being the one that actually buried him. He then led them to the location where the bodies were buried. Mark's, quote, grave was denoted with a little piece of wire coming up out of the ground. Turns out, they weren't done with Mark. The wire poked up through the ground and was attached to Mark's spine. The plan was, after the body decomposes, to pull the body up with the wire and whatever amount of spine comes up with it will be made into a necklace. What the fuck? That is absolutely the most metal thing I have heard in my entire life. Holy shit. That's literally like something you'd see in Metalocalypse, but in real life. Good God, man. They also noticed that Mark's legs had been cut off above the knee, and when asked if that was also part of the ritual, Seraphine just said, no, it just made him easier to bury. Mark wasn't the only body, though, obviously. By mid-afternoon, and after working all day in the hot sun at gunpoint, Seraphine had unearthed 12 other bodies that were buried in the cemetery behind the shed. 
There were also three more buried in a nearby orchard, but they don't find those for a few more days. And by now, the news media is losing their collective shit over this. Holy crap, think of the ratings. Everybody wants to get this story out, including Oprah and Geraldo Rivera. Literally everybody wants a piece of the ratings pie from this. And it's not just the news that's going crazy, though. A church in far Texas was incinerated after rumors of some of its congregants being involved somehow. And many people claim to see Sarah making threats to kidnap and murder ten children if her disciples were not released. The next few weeks were chaotic, to say the least, for the remaining cult members. April 22nd, Rancho Santa Elena is torched and burned to the ground by investigators, and then cleansed of evil spirits and all lingering negative energy from... Uh, you know, the, the grossness. Curanderos sprayed the burning ash pile in graves with holy water and other relics of white magic to purify the land. Curanderos is Spanish for, I think, medicine man? They're like a, like the holy cleanser person, I think. Two days after that, on April 24th, Jorge Montes is arrested. Three blocks from where the Calzada family from way earlier was wiped off the face of the earth. And three days after that, the group finds themselves in the last stronghold of their dying business. Sarah takes this opportunity to poorly attempt to weasel her way out of this by writing a note and dropping it from a window in the tiny apartment they now find themselves holed up in. This note said, Please call the judicial police and tell them that in this building is those that they are seeking. Tell them that a woman is being held hostage. I beg for this, because what I want most is to talk, or they're going to kill the girl. About that. She's the only woman in the apartment, so this sounds like she's trying to get out of this so she can make a plea deal. Only three of the five people in this apartment would come out on the other side alive. May 6, 1989. Police in Rio Sena were going door to door asking questions. The apartment they were holed up in was in Rio Sena. Trying to find any kind of lead to point them to where Adolfo and Sarah might be. But they didn't have to search for very long. Adolfo sees them out the apartment window, freaks out, and begins shooting wildly at the police and throwing huge wads of cash out the window. If I can't have it, nobody can! Except you just literally threw money out the window for anybody to find. Oh, maybe those kids from earlier found some and paid for the therapy that they definitely needed after finding a mutilated corpse in the street. 180 officers quickly surrounded the building and the next 45 minutes was a wild shootout. Amazingly, though, the only injury was an officer from when Adolfo first started blasting. Adolfo quickly realizes that there isn't any way out of this, and quickly transfers power over to his other right-hand man, El Duby. Very quickly on El Duby. He was one of the Hernandez's longtime hitmen. He'd been involved with the group from the very beginning, but I didn't have time to go all the way into his background. I'm sorry. It is bloody and complicated, though, and... Lots and lots of bad shit from him, too, so he's right where he belongs as far as, you know, context for this story goes. Adolfo hands El Duby his weapon and orders him to shoot Adolfo and his lover, Martin Quintana. Duby refuses at first. I hope I'm pronouncing that right, by the way. D-U-B-Y. I, I don't think Dubby doesn't sound right, so Duby refuses at first until Adolfo tells him that if he doesn't, he'll have an even worse time in hell. You're already gonna burn for all eternity. Don't make it worse for yourself by denying your spiritual leader his dying wish, which is to die. So Adolfo and Martine go into the closet, set themselves down on a couple of stools, and El Duby pulls the trigger. Moments later, police break down the door and arrest Duby, Sarah, and Omar Orea Ochoa. It's finally over. We did it, guys. They got arrested. We made it all the way through. Police had no trouble getting all the charges to stick, either. 
El Duby was pretty open and shut for murdering Adolfo de Jesus Constanzo and Martin Quintana. Sarah tried to impose herself as the victim, but wound up outing herself by having too much intimate knowledge of what went down. Yeah, you were part and parcel to this whole thing. You ain't getting off easy. In August of 1990, El Duby wound up getting 35 years for the murder of Adolfo and Martin. Juan Fragosa and Jorge Montes also got 35 years, but Omar Orea Ochoa died of AIDS before he could be sentenced, which would have been for the same charges as Jorge and Juan. Sarah, la madrina, was initially acquitted of Constanzo's murder, but was sentenced to six years for criminal association. What the fuck, really? Yeah, but don't worry, it doesn't last long. She tried to say that she was unaware of anything that was going on at the Rancho Santa Elena, including the murders. You know, the ones that she helped with. Jurors listened to her testimony and decided, hmm, we're gonna call bullshit on that. So they convict her of multiple murders at the ranch and slap her hard in the face with 62 years in federal prison. Serafine and Elio both got 67 years. There were 74 reported ritualistic murders in Mexico between 1987 and 1989, but at least 14 of them can be put to rest with the death of El Padrino and his cohorts, including La Madrina, securely being behind bars for the rest of their natural lives. I have no idea what happened to everybody else, but Sarah Aldrete is still in prison today and will remain there for the rest of her life. And if she ever does somehow get out, the U.S. has already promised that they'll prosecute her for the murder of Mark Kilroy, and since this is Texas, probably gonna land her in the electric chair. Holy double dog shit, that was a crazy ass story. I can't believe I'd never come across that one before. But as I mentioned before we go, I want to gear us all up for next week, which will hopefully be a little bit more manageable on time. I know this one's running really long. We're gonna very quickly go over some differences between male and female serial killers, though. As for me personally, I find female killers just a little bit more compelling to read about because I think somewhere in my mind, I don't want to be able to believe that a woman's capable of doing something so heinous. I think for me, there's still a bit of a disconnect between that being a possibility and my own subconscious expectations. I haven't quite figured that all the way out yet, but I think that's kind of why I like crime in general too. But I'm used to reading stories about men doing all sorts of horrible things, so when a woman comes up, it's just that much more compelling to me. Maybe it's because it seems, like, new to me? But enough about my own weird psychology, let's talk about how male and female killers differ. The biggest difference between the two sexes is largely the motives for which they kill. We've talked about some serial killer myths before, and sexual gratification always being the motive was one of them. And there's a reason for that. In a large number of cases, male serial killers are compelled to kill their victims because of an underlying sexual element. Not always, but enough that it could potentially be misinterpreted that way. Women, on the other hand, usually have a reason to kill, at least in their minds. There's some kind of benefit or removal of an inconvenience to them. To them, it feels more justified. Women usually kill for money or convenience, perhaps to cash in on a will or to remove an abusive spouse. Or sometimes, a woman might kill a close family member or their own child for attention or sympathy, something that men rarely ever do. But how do they differ in their methods? Men are much more prone to brute force, we saw some of that today, and physical violence like stabbing, shooting, strangling, beating to death, etc. Whereas women tend to kill with a little more nuance. Drowning, poisoning, suffocation, things that don't damage the body quite as severely. Things that don't build up nearly as much evidence. 
No blood splatter or shell casings or fibers from rope or gunpowder residue. Simple, quiet, effective is the way to go. The more violent a murder is, the more likely there is to be evidence of it. And lastly, male killers are six times more likely to kill a stranger, whereas women are twice as likely to kill someone they're already familiar with. I actually don't think I knew that before today, and that's kind of neat. Okay, so there are just a few of the main differences between male and female serial killers. Next week's episode, we'll take a look a little bit deeper into that and see just how much of it lines up with whatever story I can find. I haven't decided yet. Got a lot going on. It'll be good, don't worry. If you like that story, do me a favor. Leave me a rating or review on iTunes or Spotify. I think you can do it on both of them now. That would be super dope of you. Oh yeah, I'm also doing TikTok stuff now, so if you're over here listening from that, hi! Thanks for coming. And the rest of you can see what I'm doing over there at Second Self Pod. It's just some clips of the show, so if you've already listened to everything I put out, you're not missing anything. I'll eventually get around to clipping out all of my episodes, but hey, I'm only one man. Might take me some time. Speaking of taking time, this episode also marks my one-year anniversary of launching a podcast. Woo! My very first episode aired July 1st of last year, and... Could not be more different than the story I just told you. It was about fucking sushi. This has been a really fun journey and experiment for me. I wanted to see just how far I could take this podcasting thing on my own, just based on my own creativity, and here I am a year later, still going strong with the same microphone and the same computer, planning on doing more. If you've been with me from the beginning, I cannot thank you enough for even bothering to take the time. I'd like to think that in the last year, my quality has improved. I've certainly got better at writing, talking, my segues are a smidge less awkward. I've gotten the music stuff going on in the background at a pretty good level now. My joke writing has gotten a whole lot better, and I have recurring characters somehow. I'm figuring shit out! And I have you all to thank for that. If you didn't listen, I probably wouldn't care enough to bother. This takes a long time to put together. Although, in a weird way... I'm kind of thankful that I also haven't made any money off of this show yet, either. I think that's allowed me to really appreciate the process and figure out exactly what works and what doesn't work for me or for you all out there. So here's to another year of Matt and sometimes Alex fumbling their way through crazy stories about murder and honestly, whatever else. I don't know. I might get tired of murder one day. Who knows? But rest assured, if it's weird enough, I'm going to talk about it. So we'll see you all next week, everybody. Until then... Stay kind. <laughs>